Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. If you don't like sleeping, um, you need to read Annalise Burgess's new book. It's called Heist, South Africa's Cash and Transit Epidemic Uncovered. And it's not that you won't sleep because you'll be terrified, and you will, and it will open your eyes to a sordid underbelly of South Africa with which you may not be familiar. Um, But you need to be aware of what she writes about and talks about. But it's a blooming good book. We'll talk to her about it coming up later at about 20 past seven. But there's a lot of secrecy um, around the issue of heists and cash and transit heists. And these things happen in broad daylight all over the place. And it's important to get some disclosure. The mohair industry in South Africa coming under a huge amount of pressure. Peter, the people for ethical treatment of animals um, have issued a video. Um, which, uh, when I first saw it, I was, uh, well, SBCA should probably get involved. Animals are being manhandled and abused and it's not great. Um, does it warrant 70 of the world's biggest retailers threatening to take mohair off their shelves, threatening an industry in South Africa which employs 30,000 people? If you've seen the video, I'd like your views on that this evening. Stock Pick Monday, plus, of course, talking about markets today. The Rand actually had a bit of a comeback toward the close. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. So which family-run South Korean industrial company started life as Lakhui Chemical Industrial Corporation? That is your fast fact question this evening on 31702, 31567. Uh, A South Korean family-run company started life as Lakhui, H-U-I, maybe you don't pronounce it like that in Korean, but Lakhui Chemical Industrial Corporation today is known as what? That is today's fast fact on 31702 and 31567. 702 and Cape Talk, The Money Show. Have you seen that video released by the animal rights campaigners Peter a couple of weeks ago about conditions they claim on Angora farms uh, are pervasive in the Karoo? Sure, some of the footage does show ham-fisted amateurs doing a terrible job of shearing goats for the mohair that earns South Africa about one and a half billion rand a year. But is this video indicative of an industry-wide practice? Peter claims it's visited 12 Angora farms. It's not clear if the video footage contains footage from all 12 of those farms or whether or not it's more isolated than that. The industry's got about a 1,000 farms in South Africa. But here's the brutal reality for the economy. About 70 clothing companies around the world have said they intend stopping using mohair since the release of this video a couple of weeks ago. That could affect some 30,000 people who work for the industry. Look, some people in any industry are better than others at their jobs and the footage is disturbing you're not going to enjoy watching it if you do watch it there is some blood um, there is some extrapolation there is some patent untruths in the video but that is the nature of uh, much of the sort of protest movement that you see it's designed to get your your base uh, your your base emotions going let's get some facts on this uh, Dion Simon is the managing director for Mohair South Africa is what you've seen in the video Dion 
indicative of industry-wide practice in the mohair industry in South Africa? Hi, good evening and good evening to the listeners. Um, definitely not. I think, unfortunately, with these kind of, of videos and exposés that uh, that Peter liked to do, it's to- totally misrepresented in this, uh, in this video clip. Um, it is not what the industry is about. It's not how the industry operates. And like you said in your intro, um, the claim has been of, of 12 farms. We could not um, establish that, that actually this footage comes from 12 farms um, as claimed by Peter. And, um, yeah, I can go into a lot of detail about how it's been misrepresented um, and edited to suit their own cause. Um, and unfortunately, this causes quite you know a great deal of um, controversy and emotions from consumers out there and brands, as you as you mentioned. Now um, you, you can't you can't deny though, Dion, that you have a problem. I mean, if one farm is behaving in the way that some of the workers on those farms were behaving, the dragging around of goats, the really clumsy shearing of goats to the point where I mean, they're not just nips on on the on the skin of the goats. There are some very severe gouges in the the bodies of the goats, and people sitting on animals and bending their spines. I mean, there's some pretty grotesque footage there. You can't deny that there's not a problem, at least at some mohair farmers in South Africa. Okay, let me just correct you there, because um, according to our investigation, it's not actually the farm workers that's in question in that one specific clip that uh, that was showed by Peter. Um, and, and yes, you are correct. In, in terms of the handling that took place within a particular shearing shed, we are not quite happy with the way that has taken place. And we are taking taking further action um, during our investigation with that. But um, to say that that is the way animals are treated is, is quite incorrect. What our investigation has also shown is that uh, the farmer, in actual fact, was not present on the farm. Uh, when that that's, was, yeah, was but that's, that, that's no excuse, Dion. I mean, the fact is that he's hired people who are clumsy, ineffective and rubbish at the job and is not there to supervise. That guy shouldn't be allowed to own Angora goats, surely. You should say to him, terribly sorry, but let's unleash the SPCA on this individual and make them an example of them. Well, you're quite right. But um, in, in our investigation, it is outside contractors. Um, and then the outside contractor should be held liable for what has taken place. You can't, you can't um, distance your industry, though, Dion. You've got to take responsibility for it, surely. No, 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 we do. And we're definitely not walking away from anything. And we are definitely taking action and invest, investigating the matter fully. Dion Simon, thank you. Sorry to catch you there, Dion, Managing Director of Mohair South Africa. We'll talk to the SPCA in just a moment. They will have something to say about this. Gay van Hazlitt is an Angora farmer in uh, Prince Albert. What did you make of that footage, Gay? Hi, Bruce, and hi to the listeners. Bruce, you know what? I watched half of it and I felt nauseous. And I had to steel myself to watch the rest. The reason why I felt nauseous from the first half because of the total misrepresentation that had happened there. And then when I stole myself to watch the rest, my total dismay at seeing the footage that you were speaking about happening in a sharing shed, which is unacceptable and needs to be condemned in the strongest terms. Do you know what farm that happened on, Gay? I mean, Dion Simon's saying that these were outside contractors, so clearly the industry's done some work on this and knows whose farm it happened on. Um, what, what are you guys doing about it as an industry, as, as, a, as a fellow farmer? Well, you know what, I think um, that, that audits have to happen and make sure how people, that people are conforming to sustainable practices um, and acceptable farming practices. 
And I think, you know, maybe the time has come to be able to um, be able to have your, what is the word I'm looking for? Where you, you trail the, so the, the DNA of the fiber that you buy to, to the producer so that you can, you know, you, can, you know where you're buying a fiber from and you can be sure that you're buying it from a farm that's practicing acceptable and ethical and farming according to ethical um, farming practices. Um, you know, in terms of asking me who it was, uh, to be quite oh, honest... I didn't, I didn't ask you who it was. I was asking if you knew who it was and if you did know who it was as, as an industry, as neighbours, as people. Um, are you saying, look, Guy, you, you bring your industry into disrepute? Oh, you know, um, Bruce, I think definitely. I'm the chairperson of our Farmers Association locally here. Um, I've had a meeting where I have actually briefed all the farmers, shown them the video, spoken about, you know, actually starting to take seriously practicing proper um, ethical and sustainable farming practices and actually explaining to people that you, you run the risk of not being able to sell your fiber if you don't conform. People have to start understanding this, you know. Mm. Um, I think, and the sadness about that video is that it was, it was an isolated incident and I know that Angora goat farmers are passionate mm. about their animals. It does show an uncomfortable truth, though, that these things are very hard to regulate, Gay. And the fact is that 70 clothing retailers, international retailers, are saying we're going to phase out mohair. Now, that's 30,000 South Bruce, African jobs. Bruce, it's 1,000 producers. To regulate. It's not really difficult to regulate at all. Okay. You know, um, farmers have to take responsibility for what's happening in their sheds. We get outside contractors to come in and share one would like to think that when you walk out of the shed that the, that the sharing will continue in the, in the way that you want it. Mm. But you have to accept you've got to be there. This is the time that you've got to make sure that personally I watch the sweep of every blade, of every stroke of, of when my, animal, my animals are being shorn. I sit a meter away from them just to make sure that they're handled properly when they sat down, they're handled properly when they're being shorn because an Angora goat is highly susceptible to stress. And, uh, to stress. Yeah. And if you stress them... They get sick. They get lung infections. And really and truly, I, farmers are not going to abuse their animals or... I'm, I'm glad you make that point, Gay, because, yes, it is a well-known fact within Angora breeding that these are delicate beasts and abuse of them makes absolutely no sense, which is why um, one's got to challenge Peter's assertion that this is a widespread practice. It is an opportunity, and as much as it's uncomfortable in a crisis right now, one would think it's an opportunity for the certification you referred to earlier um, that you can actually get an association of Angora breeders who will strive for the credibility that is needed. Oh, it has been happening. Uh, the industry, I think, has, is, well, it has been doing it, and I think it's a, a, a way ahead of some of the other fiber industries in doing that. I just don't think uh, that they've got around to applying it to everybody yet. Uh, it's quite a recent thing. Mm. So there are steps being taken, and Bruce did definitely, and, and I think that uh, those of us who practice ethically want to make sure that those audits that are done are credible and that the buyers know that when that audit is put in front of them, that they know that it's a credible farmer 
practicing sustainable and ethical um, farming, farming practices. Okay, Van Hasler, thanks for chatting to us this evening. From Prince Albert in the Karoo, she's an Angora farmer. She's the uh, farmer. Uh, I've got farmer, Angora farmer. Angora farmer. Um, and she is the chair of the local farming uh, farmers committee. The MD at Mohair, South Africa, Dion Simon, also listening in on that on the line to us from Port Elizabeth. I mean, so what's the SPCA going to do about it? This is a great opportunity for them to put their mark on uh, the farming industry. Of course, we have far too many abuses of animals. We certainly do. Um, and when a case like this, Belinda Abraham, who speaks on behalf of the SPCA, when this happens, it's an opportunity for you to step in and make yourselves counted as well. Definitely, Bruce. And thank you so much for having us on the show. You know, essentially, I think there's no excuse for supporting an industry that treats animals this cruelly. And especially when there are plenty of warm and cozy and stylish fabrics that are available to us that aren't made from mohair or wool for that matter, because that industry can be equally cruel. Uh, are you suggesting that what you saw on the Peter video is something that is substantive enough to, to bring an end to the sort of farming practices that we see in South Africa, that we should be shutting down mohair, as, as Peter would like to see happen? I think it's definitely enough for people to sit up and take notice mm-hmm. and, and potentially develop the type of conscience that we need that closes down these types of industries. So when you go shopping and you see that beautiful jersey or that scarf, that you want to buy, read the label and understand any product for that matter. If it contains feathers or fur or any type of animal product, think about it, research where those products are actually acquired and how they are acquired before you decide to spend your money on them. Is it time for the industry to create a certification process to allow for ethical farming or is that not going to be good enough for you? You know, I wonder with with Angora goats being the prey animals that they are. Prey animals, sorry? Yes, they're prey animals, so so they have that kind of instinct. Um, th- th- they would typically be hunted. If oh, oh, see, I see what you mean. Sorry, yes. So when we have an animal like that that is instinctively a prey animal, being restrained in any way is a horrifying experience for them. So we have to wonder, is there typically an ethical way to actually be farming mohair, or isn't there? And, you know, potentially there's, there needs to be a lot of study around this. Sure. But, but Belinda, in the case of the very clear manhandling and very poor management of potentially one, maybe more flocks of these, of these goats, as depicted in these videos, have you guys uh, stepped into the breach? Are you taking action? Have you been to the farms involved? Well, I've had a look at the video, um, Bruce, and I must say that it's quite horrific and it's quite disturbing. And obviously, you know, people that have absolutely no training have been left unsupervised and potentially are shearing an animal or... or but have, have you, have you actually, form. Belinda, actioned any, have you taken any action on this yet? Right, so we haven't yet, Bruce, but that most that mostly being because, um, fortunately for us, we don't have um, Angora farms in the Western Cape. But I would imagine that the National Council of SPCAs would be very interested in the video. And Thank you. Belinda, we must leave it there. Sorry, we are out of time. But, I mean, here's the SPCA. This video has been around for a month. You can't be going all philosophical about, you know, how much you hate it when, uh, when, when animals are manhandled if you're not going to be taking direct action at the brutality that was exposed in that video. Yeah. Belinda Abraham, please get on to your national colleagues and get them to, to take some action on it. Otherwise, what's the purpose of uh, of speaking out against animal abuses the money show the markets yeah welcome to the money show this evening an unusual top story tonight but we thought it was worthwhile on the basis that an industry in south africa that employs 30,000 people at a at a thousand different properties is potentially at risk as a result of what looks like 
an isolated series of incidents. Are there, can you have an isolated series of incidents? Uh, potentially isolated series of incidents uh, involving animal abuse. And the SPCA, frankly, that was disappointing. Brian Pyle from the old Mutual Investment Group. Uh, our currency had a blowout and then pulled back. The US and China are friends again. We're not having a trade war just yet. And it's all back to normal, whatever that is. Yeah, and the the funny thing is that the market ended almost flat off the back of all of that news. Mm. So I think people digesting it. The U.S. markets are up as we speak. Um, but our currency was actually two ways. It was strong against uh, the pound, um, but slightly weak against the, the U.S. dollar. Uh, Closing period on Friday versus today. So mm. a little bit two ways on, on that front. Markets watching and waiting to see what our Reserve Bank does on interest rates. And I certainly doubt they're going to do absolutely anything other than warn that rates are likely to go up if we see continued re- relative rand weakness and this oil price, which just won't go down substantially. I think you're spot on, Bruce. Um, two months ago, I think we were all hoping and, and, and thinking that rates would come down. The latest set of results, data, inflation numbers, the RAND getting a bit weaker would suggest that those were hopeful. Um, And I seriously doubt we see anything other than a warning of it's not going down. And if anything, it's going up in time. That's what it looks like at the moment. Great. Share prices up like 6% a day for three days, trading days in a row. I haven't seen any news. Somebody seems to have wind that perhaps things are turning around for Brett. I'm not too sure about the, the, the previous couple of days, but the only thing I can think of today was that um, Pioneer Foods came out with results. Now, within Breit, 35 to 40% of their NAV is made up of Premier Foods. Ah, okay. And within Pioneer Foods, their essential foods business, which is maize, milling, bread, et cetera, et cetera, did very well. So not a lot of turnover growth, but a big snapback in, in, earnings, in, in um, earnings of that business. It was up 70% on profit level. And I think people are reading through from Pioneer into Bright and saying, you know what, those premier food biz, uh, results are going to be good. We can, um, we, we can ignore 30-something billion rands worth of write-off on New Look in the UK <laughs> as long as premier foods are it, doing it's well. Priced in. It's priced It is priced, priced in. in. Yeah. Um, and then Barlow World's results today. I mean, Barlow World is, should be in, in quite a sweet spot in terms of the economy. We've got some mining recovery happening. We've seen some mining production numbers coming out, which suggest there is life in the old dog yet. South Africa's economy showing some... Very small, very small, very very green, very tender shoots, but there is hope. Is Barlow World reflecting that? The share price was interesting today because out the blocks it was up, I think, a percent or two, and then finished the day down 2%. But during the day it was actually down 4 And I think what people did is they saw initially it was up 14% at headline earnings per share and reacted very positively to, towards that. But then started looking into the detail. And in the detail, there are one or two things that is not so great. So operating profit was only up 3%. And I say only because, you know, that's a good result. But people, I think, were hoping for more. And then there's lots of strain on their working capital. So when they are foreseeing good times, they need to stock up. And by stocking up, there's a cash outflow. So inventory is up. But they haven't sold those goods or they're hoping to sell those goods. So you've got to go to Caterpillar in the United States and say, we would like 50 big yellow heavy machines for this season, please, as opposed to last year's 25. You've got to pay for those up front and then wait for your customers to buy them from you and give you your profit. Yes. So so of those 50, about 30 are probably pre-sold, so on a back-to-back order. But you are going on spec on Mm. uh, on the other 20. And I think it's the detail in that other 20 that people are saying, well... 
will they say it? And I don't know that those are the exact numbers, but no, exactly. Uh, yeah, we make, yeah, we're, making up, we're making up the numbers just <laughs> yeah, to, to yeah, make a point. Um, Capitec yeah. came under attack again today. Viceroy has gone blah blah blah, um, uh, and the market shrugged off what is quite an aggressive new report from from Viceroy. Uh, Viceroy saying end of year financial announcements in 2018 are reflective of deteriorating business conditions, corroborate the continuity of several intentionally misleading accounting practices that we have reported in the past, uh, and that's what Viceroy is saying. Yeah. The market is saying, oh, Viceroy, <laughs> you know, pick another fight. Yeah, so interestingly, Capitex share price went up off the back of this in a market where other banks were down. So it was up one and, and a lot of other banks were down too. The market, I, this is, I think, just another shot across the bows and saying, you know, let's have a go at it. They've now aimed it at the audit committee and they've put it on their website that they're taking on the audit committee. I think it's just another failed attempt at you know bringing it down or, or bringing it into disrepute. I think Capitec have handled it very well in terms of responding to everything they needed to do. Um, so I, yeah, I think the market and, and myself are sympathetic towards Capitec and saying, you know what, Viceroy, you've made enough noise. It's it's time to finish. Brian Pyle from the Old Mutual Investment Group, thank you very much. We'll talk in a couple of minutes' time to Jeremy Sampson, Director of Brand Finance South Africa. They value brands, and one of the fastest rising brand valuations in South Africa is Capitec. We'll talk about that in a bit. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. So fast fact this evening, which family-run South Korean industrial company started life as Lakhui Chemical Industrial Corporation? Uh, several of you saying Samsung, and that's a good guess. It is one of the biggest family-run businesses um, in South Korea, but it's the other one. It is LG. 73-year-old chairman Ku Bon-mu has died. He's credited with transforming the company from a cheap appliance maker to a global technology, a chemical powerhouse. I didn't know LG did chemicals, actually, over just two decades. Now, he's been succeeded by his adopted son. Uh, LG started life making cosmetics and then expanded into plastics and into household products and even made toothpaste at one point. But today uh, we know LG from being, making big screen TVs and all of those sorts of household appliances. It's all due to a man who's just died, Ku Bon Mu, and his stepson, adopted, uh, his adopted son, I beg your pardon, taking over the family business. Fourth generation. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. Sport in just a moment. Morena Mutupi standing by. But on the next Money Show, we're looking at the science of the tourism industry. David Frost, Chief Executive of the South African Tourism Services Association, joining me in studio to talk about things like visas and visitor numbers and the job opportunities that can come out of South Africa's tourism industry. Also, Andy Rice with Heroes and Zeros. Looking forward to that all coming up on the next Money Show. 702 The Money Show. The Money Show. SMS Bruce on 31702. Brands are great. Brands are valuable. Brands are, yeah, critical in the building of companies. They're critical in the growing an asset of value, as Pavlo would put it. You know what happens the moment a brand goes bad, of course. Brand Gupta, for example, brought brand South Africa to the brink and, in fact, was instrumental in the death of Brand Bell Pottinger. 
And it's amazing how fast brands can collapse if we look at the value. I wonder if they've done KPMG. We should ask that. Should we ask that? Have they done brand KPMG? KPMG is in trouble in the United Kingdom over its auditing of a company called Carillion, which is um, too complicated to go into now. But uh, KPMG's name in the UK is under a huge amount of pressure here as well. And we've had yeah, the audit profession in South Africa come under huge pressure. But Brand Finance South Africa has been looking at other brands. It's been looking at MTN. It's been looking at Capitec and Altura and Celsi. We'll talk about some of those this evening. Jeremy Sampson, Director of Brand Finance Africa. Has there ever been a year, Jeremy Sampson, where so many brands have come under so much pressure um, as 2017? Evening, Bruce. I, I think you're absolutely right because um, just in the last year, we've seen that brands indeed are important. Reputation is important. No, there are still some naysayers out there, and you will have come across them, who will still sort of sniff at brand valuation and say, no, no, it's not that important. Well, as you said, in the last year, look at the, the Gupta effect. You've mentioned a couple of the companies, but also McKinsey's and Saps and people like that have been dragged into it. As you mentioned, KPMG. This isn't just a local thing now. It's international and uh, no, Bell Pottinger was one of the top, top companies in the UK, headed up by Lord Bell himself, who bailed out about 12 months before, you know, the what's it, hit the fan. Um, but then you've got, you know, just in other ways, not Gupta ways, we've had Steinhoff. Uh, we've got companies like Tiger Brands having difficulties, EOH. These are the big losers, and that's where brands, uh, if they're looked after, they're consistent, like the MTN's Vodacoms. But Things can go wrong, and they do go wrong. And I have to say, we've had a bit of a vintage year, haven't we, the last 12 months? It's been most entertaining to watch from afar. But just give me a sense of it again, uh, Jeremy Sampson, if you would. This principle of brand valuation versus market capitalization, which is the value that people will pay rands and cents for. This idea of brand valuation, as you said yourself, a lot of people find strange. They absolutely do, and... uh this is where about 20-odd uh, years ago, international standards put together a standard for the valuation of brands, the intangibles, spitting out the brand from the other intangibles. And brand finance is one of those organizations that works around the world doing it. Go on to brandfinance.com and that will give you the methodology in the background. And in fact, all the results are there already on South Africa. But it's teasing out the importance of the brand, the financial input of that brand. And as you say, when you look at the market cap of a company, um, how much impact does the brand make? Well, in some areas like mining and commodities, it makes virtually no input at all. But get into the heavy uh, FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods, and it can have a much bigger impact. Get onto some of the technology uh, stocks, as in the United States, the Googles and people like that, and it's a huge percentage of the market cap. Okay, then, Jeremy, take, take me through this, the principle of Capitec. Here's a South African startup, 20-something years old. Uh, it's barely out of the blocks in terms of South African banking, yet it's developed in a considerable amount of resilience considering the various attacks on its integrity. The latest round uh, happened today from Viceroy. Brand Capitec has not only held up, but while the market value of Capitec has come under pressure since um, questions were asked about its business model, brand value has actually gone up. It's gone up incredibly, and it's a wonderful success story. 
you know, one of the new age banks, if I can call it that. Um, and, you know, this is where you have the traditional banks, the four or five of them, often over 100 years old. And Capitec, what, is just over a decade old. Uh, it's an exciting time as well because we've got new banks coming along this year. But in Capitec's case, just in the last 12 months, they've put on 1.2 million new customers. Now, that alone tells you something. And that's despite uh, what the, uh, uh, you know, the study is being brought to bear and uh, the accusations made. And as you say, even today, more accusations. The fact is the South African public loves Capitec. They're moving across to it in droves. And it's not just a racial thing. Uh, it's not just a low-end market thing. People generally say, wow, it's lovely and simple. It acts with integrity. Uh, and I think the first time there were rumors about its strength, within 24 hours, they were putting out tweets and sending SMSs to their customers. And my daughter's one of those customers saying, everything's fine, just relax. We're right on top of things. And I think this integrity resonates with people. The simplicity of their operation resonates and the fact that they're cheap. They often don't charge you. Um, and then what's interesting to me is also how um, FNB has seen its brand value rise 22% in a single year, yet it's not nearly as aggressive in its self-promotion as it was perhaps five or ten years ago. FNB's brand is far less omnipresent than it was, yet the market is seeing value in what it's, in its offering. You're absolutely right, and I think this is where it's built up a tremendous uh, momentum. Um, one of the things about the, the brand finance valuations is also looking at the past. You go back three, four years to see what the performance has been like, but you also look at the prospects through um, you know, the lens of two, three, four years hence. And FNB has been very powerful, um, and it is very interesting how this jostling that's going on with Standard Bank and ABSA and to a lesser degree, Medbank and Investec, has shown them elbow their way to the top this year. Will they sustain it? Who knows? But they've been having a good run, and you know, a lot of that momentum, some people might say, down to a CEO from three years or so ago. And this is the thing. The, these banks are rather like super tankers. They take a long while to wind up and a long while to slow down. But FNB's got tremendous momentum, and we found that the sentiments of people generally are extremely warm towards them, more so compared with some of their competitors. Jeremy Sampson, Director of Brand Finance Africa. Here's a question for you, 31702, 31567. What, according to Jeremy Sampson, which brand uh, is uh, the most valuable in South Africa? Brand Finance Africa's perspective on it, which is South Africa's most valuable brand? 31702, 31567 on The Money Show. The Money Show. Stock Pick Monday. Time for Stock Pick Monday. Let's look at what the views are of Nick Kunza this evening, stockbroker at Bridge Stockbrokers. All Rand hedges because of the Rand or because they're fabulous companies, Nick? Bruce, good evening, yes. Um, well, you know, every, every market has its, its sort of cycle and its theme, and, and I guess uh, this year is all about the dollar, and, and I guess by default the Rand. So, you know, being a South African stockbroker, you, you, you can't avoid the currency at the moment. Mondi has been a spectacular performer for years. How much really does it have left in it from a from a stock perspective? 
I think still quite a bit. You know, Mondi's very few people actually got Mondi rights over the years. It's been one of those, uh, you know, that paper sector has been so difficult to call. But all of a sudden, Mondi seems to be doing quite a lot right. It paid a special divvy, as as, as listeners will remember recently. Um, and also, it's it's in a nice space. You know, it's, it's actually quite correlated to the tech space in America, believe it or not. So, uh, not not as simple as you think. But uh, we like it a lot, and we've got it on our portfolios currently. Correlated to the tech sector, in other words, Amazon.com delivers a lot of boxes with not very much mm-hmm. in them. Um, and those boxes are delivered by the likes of, of Mondi. Correct. Uh, it's funny because we actually, what prompted us to look at it is we read an article uh, a year or so ago about uh, in New York that uh, they were trying to limit when they delivered their delivery time for Amazon because it was clogging up the sidewalks with boxes. And uh, 75% of, of Mondi's businesses is, is exactly those boxes that we're blocking up New York sidewalks. So uh, someone's going to make money and we like it. And who's recycling all the boxes? Because we should get them as well. Um, Bitcorp is an interesting one. Uh, this mm. is the, the international part of Bidvest that was spun off a while back. It was a bit of a slow start, but it's found its legs as well, hasn't it? Yeah, a bit of a slow start. And I think as much as it's found its legs, it's also a bit of a slow start this year. I mean, it, it's still down 12% year to date. And it, it, it's been one of those frustrating shares. It hasn't quite got its leg up as much as it has bounced back off its lows. I mean, it was down at 242, you know, 52 weeks ago, and it's back at 264 now. So it hasn't really done much. But uh, it's certainly that the recent trading update or the recent results that came out, uh, organic sales are up over 6%, trading profit is up 8%. Uh, I guess you could say it's a little bit boring but, uh, you know, certainly better times to come and looking better. I see no purpose in your third one. I love their product and I, and I mm. get that you want to have the globally biggest uh, brewer in your portfolio, mm. but why on earth own the shares when you could just buy some of its product and forget about your worries for a while? I just think, you know, for, for us it's uh, – it's one of those those giants. I think we have to own it. Look, it, it is coming up as a, as I put in a, in a note earlier that uh, you know the World Cup starting. They they've just kicked off. If you pardon the pun, the ad campaign mm-hmm. for the for the football. Huge exposure, nice exposure to emerging markets, and, and I do think it's it's another one. That's you know it's another one that's also lagged this year. It's down 11 percent year to date. Uh, look, granted, I'll give you it's not cheap, but um, I just think it's got it's got more upside to come for us. My thanks to you, Nick Kunza, stockbroker at Bridge Stockbrokers. Three stocks for you this evening, all global in nature. Mondi, Bidcorp and AB InBev. You can buy their shares on the JSE and be part of the international profits that they make around the globe, especially in the case of AB InBev. I mean, they really do uh, have all four corners of the globe, if globes have corners, uh, very much in the frame. I just don't know how much money they're going, how good the returns are going to be when you're so big. And you're like, oh, Brazil did well this year. Oh, China did badly. Oh, China did well. Oh, Brazil did badly. It's so diversified. I wonder if there's that much upside. Nick Kunza thinks so from Bridge Stock Brokers. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. A scary half hour coming up, uh, followed by a lovely half hour. Make Money Mondays. Katlejo Mabwe is our Make Money Monday special guest. But we're talking heists and it's a scourge that we thought we got control of after it gone completely out of control in the two in, in the sort of in the noughties part of the 2000s but it's come back with a vengeance and hardly a day goes by without an horrific cash in transit heist and Anlis Burgess has detailed some of the most revolting cash and transit crimes that have been committed in South Africa in the last 20 years we'll also talk to Kalyani Pele as parliament starts to take an interest finally in dealing with the problem The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield.
on 702, your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show on this magnificent Monday evening. I'm Bruce Whitfield. And, uh, yeah, the most valuable brand in South Africa, in fact, is, yep, you're right, MTN is the most valuable brand in South Africa. And you would have think of all the trials and tribulations it has been through in recent years, the brand would come under pressure. But that's not the way brand valuation works. It, look, it still remains Greek to me how these brand valuations are reached because sometimes there is a disconnect by between the company and its uh, financial performance and the brand value, but the brand value is determined by you. You decide whether or not you like the brand, whether the company is making big profits or fighting in Nigeria or has had a massive management overhaul and they're still working on the process of getting it back to a financial a path of financial st- stability. That's one part of what they do, but you decide whether the brand's worth anything or not because either you support that brand or you don't. But yeah, MTN, South Africa's most valuable brand and fast risers in the world of brand valuation include the likes of Capitec, F&B doing well. Standard Bank came off quite sharply. I found that interesting. Um, but yes, that is the world of brands. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to this evening's edition of The Money Show. We're looking at heists in some detail this evening. Uh, we'll talk to Annelise Burgess about her new book. It's called Heist, South Africa's Cash in Transit epidemic uncovered. Uh, but first to the Sabric Chief Executive, Kalyani Pillay, South Africa's the South African Banking Risk Information Centre, saying today they applaud the decision taken by the National Assembly Portfolio Committee on Police to hold a special meeting into cash and transit heists. It's scheduled for the 13th of June, so just over two weeks from now. Kalyani Pillay is the Chief Executive of Sabric on the line to us from Johannesburg. Is this the first time Parliament has held this kind of hearing, Kalyani? It's the first time, Bruce, so good evening, firstly. Uh, you know, we're really pleased about it. We're we obviously, you know, almost sort of desperate at the moment. It's a crisis situation, certainly. You know, we've seen already for this year, and, you know, with vehicle on the road attacks, the high, as they call it, because there's so many other kinds of attacks as well. We've seen 60 already, and it's, it's, it's absolutely astounding. And so we, we, we have, you know, we're working closely with the police and, um, we obviously want far more done. And so we're pleased that the Portfolio Committee is actually, you know, is giving this matter some attention. And hopefully, you know, with everybody working together and with them providing oversight as well, we we may just see a little bit, uh, you know, more movement in terms of, of getting getting to the bottom of this. Why do you think it is that it has taken Parliament so long to take a crisis on of this sort of proportion so seriously? You disclose that, what, 60 cash and transit heist so far this year, hundreds last year, which is more than the year before yeah. and more than the year before, yeah. after a period of relative calm in terms of cash and transit heists. Yes, you know, certainly from the beginning of last year, we saw this, you know, the steady increase, 379 incidents last year, uh, 78 incidents, 378, but of course that's nation of the different modus operandi. Unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you, Bruce, in terms of why, uh, you know, only now. But we, we have been working closely with the police. We've been working with the police committee for the previous and the current one. There are a whole lot of initiatives in place. But, you know, there are obviously gaps and there are areas that, that need more attention and focus. We have, of course, pointed out to the police where our concerns are. And, you know, we're providing whatever support we can to them, the cash and transit companies as well. 
we're not sort of sitting back and saying, you know, we expect them to do everything. We're happy to do our part as well. So, um, but it's just bizarre, you know, the, 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 the level that it's reached. And I think that one of the things that's been a major concern to us is the fact that we've had, we've seen no arrests. There's been, you know, a lot of information out there. And so we're hoping that Prime Intelligence would actually, um, you know, ramp up in terms of what they're doing as well. And, and that we'd, we'd, we'd get to the bottom of it. The, the, the other thing that all is concerning us is where's all this money going? Yeah. Um, I mean, and yeah, Kalani, unfortunately, your line quality isn't as good as we would like, but let's, uh, let's persist. Have you read Annalise Burgess's book, um, Heist? I haven't, unfortunately. I, I, we, 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 we did um, some interviews um, uh, and contributed to the book. I know she's a little bit upset with me. Oh, she, she, she quotes you extensively in the last chapter. I can read it to you if you like, yeah? I, I read, I, 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 I was away, and so I've just got back, and I did see it, and I must say that I did call to her. So, but it, it, there's nothing more to it other than the fact that we were so, we had done a fairly interview with a Kevin Gabe or whatever we wanted, but I'm not even going to go into all that. I didn't make a call to her because we were so busy mm. and, you know, we had responded to her follow-up query. Let's go into politics of the book. I'm about to talk to her yeah. about the book in a second, but she makes some interesting observations. She calls them the dirty little secrets about yeah. cash and transit heists. Most of the stolen money is never recovered. You make that point now as well. Yes. She makes the yes. point that cops are involved. She makes the point that people think it's okay to steal from cash and transit companies, that uh, organized crime is attacking the economy. And she makes the point, and this is where you come in, cash and transit companies are not doing enough. She's expressing, I think, the view there of when he was briefly police minister, Fikile Mbalula, who was very keen to pass the buck to the cash and transit companies to say that the people you represent or on whose behalf you work actually don't do enough to, to protect the country's cash on the roads. You know, there's an obligation on the cash and the company. Oh, Kalyani, try again. Can you stand on your head, perhaps? Are you with us still? Tell you what, now let's, I want, I want Kalani Pillay to come back on that point. Uh, Cecile, if you can try and get her back. Um, and we'll talk also uh, to Annalise Burgess this evening. I mean, the, uh, the fact that she seems very grumpy <laughs> with Sabrick um, about the way, the way in which communication has happened about this. Um, but yeah, here is a... It's a it's a crisis. I mean, the risk of you getting caught up in the crossfire on one of these things rises each and every single day, and the lack of arrests is significant as well. Um, the cash and transfer companies are not doing enough. Kalyani Pillay, respond to that, please. That thought. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I'm saying that you know, cash and transfer companies have done and are doing quite a lot in terms of making sure that their vehicles are more secure. They're running all the the tests in terms of uh, you know like polygraphs and and all kinds of tests to to um, make sure that they have staff that 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 are that should be working for them. There's a number of things that are being done, and I'm sure that there are things that can be improved. And they're taking note of those, and they are certainly looking at at, at doing more. We 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 look at risk mitigation all the time with them as well. Um, so there are a number of things that they have done. They've, they they their vehicles have been secured with with you know cameras with alarms. With, um, with with uh, foam in some instances as well, uh, so there's been a number of things that, uh, that have been done, but and and of course there's talk about collusion between uh, staff of the CIT and the syndicate, and I have no doubt that those kind of things happen in organised crime, 
But at the end of the day, you know, the kingpins, the, the people who are behind it, that's where the focus needs to be. Uh, so much more needs to be done so that you could ensure that you can prevent these things from actually happening. And like I said, because we haven't seen arrests uh, except for the last couple of days now in, in the mm. box. But, but it's it's like yeah. arresting the drug mules at the airport. It's uh, yes. it, 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 This is a deeply sophisticated, deeply complex, very yes. high-level thought process, criminal activity, crime intelligence, yes. Um, is dirty secret number eight has failed dismally in this process. Do you really think that you're making any progress, uh, Kalyani? I know it's nice that Parliament's going to look into this, but will it actually yeah. lead to a breakthrough? Well, look, in the last uh, in in the, in the last few months, there's been a couple of initiatives that have been started with the police, and in the last couple of days, uh, even more robust sort of approach now. So, so there are things that are underway. Hopefully, we'll be able to to have some successes come out of it. I just hope that the momentum doesn't uh, slow down and that we just need to keep at and and, and get this going because it's just, it it can't go on like this. I most certainly can't, but it is. Chief Executive of Sabric, Kalyani Pillay. In a moment, uh, Annelies Burgess has written a really great page turner. It'll keep you awake at night for two reasons. One, you'll be too scared to go to sleep. And two, um, it is very well written, very well researched and takes uh, it looks at 10 cash in transit heists over a 20-year period. And during that 20-year period, average of 300 a year, you know, that is 6,000 cash and transit potentially. Let's see if we can get some stats out of her uh, as we uh, stand by to talk to Annelies Burgess this evening, the author of Heist, South Africa's Cash and Transit Epidemic Uncovered, Kalyani Pillay at Sabrik, saying they're grateful Parliament is finally. I would have thought Parliament would have jumped on this ages ago. Why not? One wonders. The Money Show. Business Books. Are you one of those people who watches horror movies with their hands clasped against their faces, but you spread your fingers out so that you can actually see what's going on and you almost created this imaginary barrier between yourself and the screen and you think somehow if you do that, um, the movie can't harm you? Well, you are deluding yourself and you know it. Um, that's precisely how I felt, though, over the weekend, plowing through Annalise Burgess's book, Heist, South Africa's Cash in Transit Epidemic Uncovered. It's it's good to see some interest in Parliament about the scourge, but one wonders whether we have a chance of beating it. Annalise Burgess, the author of Heist! Exclamation mark, on the line to us this evening. What a horrible story you've told, Annalise Burgess. A horrible story well told um, and a page-turner. Um, but it's only 10 of, what, I estimate roughly between five and 6,000 cash in transitists in 20 years? Absolutely. It's a very small little um, number of heists. Um, and I, I decided on doing it that way so that I could try and get into the kind of detail of, of how these heists are planned, how they are investigated, how they are prosecuted. So it's a very small little sample, but I think it does give one an idea of, of what going on in the belly of the beast, so to speak. Do you get a sense that there is a very single or maybe a couple of very powerful cabals, organized criminals at the core of these things executing these, or is it more random than that? Look, I've spoken to a lot of people in the um, cash and transit industry, and my information is that the cash and transit industry believes that there are between 130 and 150 of these very big kingpins who put together 
the gangs that are executing these heists. And so the feeling is that if one could kind of identify these people and take them out, you would be able to um, bring about quite a big change in terms of um, the execution of, the, of, of these heists. And part of your research has been speaking to gangsters who've been caught and some who have then been released from prison subsequently. Some have got remorse. Some uh, are repeat offenders and people who are never going to stop until uh, it ends badly for them or somebody else. Um, and what is extraordinary is the the level of planning, the professionalism of the operations and how they're carried out. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the one thing that we have to understand about this particular crime is that it's an incredibly organized crime. These people are professionals. They are not, you know, two guys that sit over a beer and decide to hit a van. They are very professional. I've spoken to two incredible researchers, Dr. Henny Lochner and Dr. Matlanola Tobane, who between the two of them spoke to about 70 of these um, incarcerated criminals. And the one thing they, they say, both, both pieces of research show how incredibly organized this is. They go about putting together teams that are specialized. They recruit people who are specialists in hijacking the required um, ramming vehicles, people who are specialists in um, firearms, people who are specialists in you know, specialist drivers, people who are specialists in intelligence. So this is not just kind of random crime. These are very organized syndicates, and they're very good at what they do. They call themselves businessmen. They say, we are good at what we do, we are very good criminals, and we see ourselves as businessmen, not as criminals. The level of violence associated with cash and transit heists generally, but particularly in some of the specific cases that you refer to in this book is nothing short of extraordinary. But you go into and you take the trouble to explain why the gangs feel the violence is necessary. And it's about the subjugation of trained individuals who are armed and will shoot back given the opportunity. But it's the brutality of what is happening um, in these gangs is frightening, but I guess that's part of the modus operandi because the next time you ram a cash and transit van off the road, you don't want them to resist. So you you, you feel nothing for torching a cash and transit van with people who do resist and burning people alive. I mean, it's that level of brutality. Absolutely. So, um, you know, Dr. Henny Lochner, when he spoke to the people, the, the criminals that he interviewed, they say, we will do whatever is necessary to, to be successful. We prefer not to have to shoot people because then, of course, we have a murder rap on our hands. Um, so we prefer not to have to shoot people. We prefer we go in with big firepower. We go in all guns blazing because our ultimate aim is to subjugate these people and to make them cooperate and to give us what they want or what we want. Um, and, and that's, and that's, the, that's the, I think that's the issue around violence. They prefer not for anyone to be shot. But let's, let's remember that in 2017, 18 um, guards were, were shot. Um, so it's not, it's, it's not a violentless crime. Um, if the chips are down, they will do whatever is necessary.
Uh, and deliberately so, and violent, and absolutely brazen. These things happen predominantly in broad daylight because that's when cash is moved about in uh, uh, in society. Many of these guys are repeat offenders, and then you've got people out on bail who re-offend. And there's a clear sense that we can't be touched here. There's a This is a crime of extraordinary complicity within uh, the cash and transit companies and within the police and even higher up through the judiciary, you suggest. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, 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 the theme that comes out from all these interviews that Dr. Henny Lochner and Dr. Tabani did was the reason that cash and transit uh, crime is so prolific is because it's easy, uh, because it's incredibly lucrative, and because the consequences are very, uh, are very are minimal. The chances of people being arrested is small. The chances of them being successfully prosecuted is even smaller. And and that's why this crime is so prevalent. It's an easy crime. And the um, the rewards are huge. I looked at just these 10 heists that I looked at, looked at in my book. About 465 million rand was taken. Only 33 million was taken back. And then eight, uh, 14 million of that was, was then stolen subsequently from a police safe. So only... About 20, maybe 19 million, in fact, was found back. So it's an incredibly lucrative crime. There's these, these, these massive amounts of money that just kind of siphon out into the criminal underworld. Yet when there are successful prosecutions, the courts are brutal in their administration of the, of the law in their, in, to whatever extent they can. Um, the courts do hand out very heavy sentences absolutely people go down for life um um but we have to understand that the number of prosecutions successful prosecutions that do take place are a very small number of of these actual heists and the big problem that we're dealing with is that um you know people can be arrested and many of them are but then immediately we have the problem of people actually being released on bail and the the chances of, of a successful prosecution, from my research, are very, very small because you need very good police officers, people who are experienced, experienced detectives to be able to actually carry what they say, a case through court. And that happens very rarely. I mean, some of the cases have been expertly prosecuted and you've had really good teams. I mean, to Jackie Salibi's credit, you, you give him credit for the, some of the teams that he was putting on cash and transit heists. And it was around that time we saw a dip. It suggests it's possible to get a handle on it. But right now, it does feel as if there is a total loss of control. Kalyani Pele, who you quote toward the end of your book, but we'll leave that for you and Kalyani to sort out, um, um, admits it as much this evening. They've lost control of the fight. I mean, that's my reading the subtext of what she says. And that goodness parliament now is getting involved. Having done as much research and spent as so much time as you have, doing the work on this, do you think it is something that can be defeated? I think absolutely. You know, we, we need to look back at 2006. That was the absolute zenith of this crime. There was 465 incidents of CRT crime in, in 2006. And then it was brought down dramatically in the years afterwards through a good cooperation between the CIT companies and the police, sharing of intelligence, um, a, a crack task, that was put on the job 
Um, we saw in 2006 uh, the in, in KwaZulu-Natal that the KZN 26 gang was put behind bars. There's a very successful cooperation between Prussian transit companies and, and the police. And when we talk about what needs to be done now, we need to look at what was done successfully then. It was so successful, in fact, that when I started writing this book uh, last year, I spoke to my good friend Max Dupree and I said I was commissioned to write this book. And he says, why on earth did anyone ask <laughs> It's not a problem anymore. Yeah. Exactly. He says not a, it's not a crime problem anymore. And then in the, in the course of this year of me researching this, it, I started realizing there was this resurgence of this crime. You know, in 2014, we had 180 cases of CIT. In 2017, that peaked at 378. Um, that's more than 100% increase over three years. We are now five months into 2018, and we've already got 111 cases. So this is an epidemic. I mean, I speak about that in my book. I say it's an epidemic. It's a mutating it's a virus, and it really is. Is there any indication, I mean, through all of your research and without, you know, putting yourself in any danger or anybody else in any danger that you may have spoken to, is there any indication as to who the kingpins are? No, there isn't. Um, I mean, this is a, these, are, these aren't kind of fancy criminals, you know, uh, big names. These are just very professional guys who go about the, the, the job of making a lot of money. Um, cash and transit companies tell me, and you know, that's the thing that we forget. We talk about um, police intelligence has become a little bit uh, problematic, but cash and transit companies run very good and very um, vast intelligence net networks. And they say, we know who the guys are. We know who these chaps are. The problem is being able to arrest them because cash and transit companies can't arrest them. We need the cops to be able to come to the party. We need the cops to be able to work with us, arrest them and prosecute them. So it's a multiple failure of organs of state and cooperation between the interested parties. If Parliament can pull that one off, we've got a chance. Exactly. Let's, I'm hearing a lot of positive stuff from the cops mm. at the moment. Um, Becky Pele is really kind of interested in taking this on and, and making this a priority. Our new commissioner of police is, is, a, is a career cop. He, he wants to take on organized crime. I, I'm quite confident that this might actually now change. Um, people are interested in actually doing proper police work and taking on these organized syndicates. High time. Annelise Burgess, thanks for chatting. Author of Heist, it really is an eye-opening book. It'll freak you out, but you need to be freaked out because you need to face this reality. South Africa's cash and transit epidemic uncovered. A couple of your questions this evening which are answered in the book. And I didn't want to go into too much detail because that's why you should buy the book and read it. Uh, but police are involved. Yes, police are involved. And she talks about the police who are involved. Why can't the guards shoot the people doing the heist? Well, Put yourself in a tin can, drill some small holes into the tin can and then have 20 people with automatic rifles and explosives and cars ramming into the side of you and, yeah, you don't have a chance. Why is cash and transit robbery taking place with those vans that never have money? They're, I've never heard of anybody hit an empty van. The people carry, tell the robbers or do they connive? It's all about a massive conspiracy between people who work in these cash and transit companies, police, the judiciary. It's detailed. Unleashed Burgess's book is very good. Read it. 
The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. The Money Show. Make Money Mondays. Make Money Mondays brought to you by Sunland Private Wealth, your wealth, our craft, or their craft, it's their craft, really. Um, so what do Ridi Tabi and Katejo Mabwe have in common, other than being media superstars, other than being very popular, other than being sought after and admired? They both have connections to Porches Thurum and Alex J and John Burks. And who else? Is there anyone else? Ezekiel Sabeng. Ezekiel Sabeng. Um, goodness, who else? A lot of people have tried to get out of Poch. <laughs> tried? What are you talking about, Bruce? It's a, it's, it's a good town. It's good people. Uh, tell, I, I, tell, I, I, tell me about your people. Uh, I mean, tell me about your people. Live, 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 no, over them. No, but, no, but, no, <laughs> but, but, but your family. And you, you've got an incredibly close bond with mom, incredibly close bond with grandma and granddad, because early life in Poch wasn't great. Early life in Poch was, it, for me at the time, it was life. That's what life was. Sure. I moved to Poch of Sturm in uh, 89 after my parents got divorced. Um, and I was raised by my granddad and Tadis Altiel and my grandma, Ellen, who is late, passed away in 2015. And um, it was a tough upbringing um, when I think about all the beatings I got now in retrospect. But they were, they were worth it and they were needed. Um, but it was, uh, I think, a life that I still look back on with much appreciation because there were many lessons that I learned out of that part of my life that stood me in good stead. Now, Katlejo Mabwe... I'm sorry, Bruce. It's late and I've had a very long weekend. I understand. Katlejo introduces himself. Katlejo Mabwe is a media personality. He's a musician. He is an all-round superstar. If you don't know, if you can't picture, just picture the guy... Who's always got a big fat smile on his face uh, in the Outurance ads? Outurance has been good to you, hey? Lots oh, of ads. How long has that campaign been going? Uh, it's now on two years now. And actually, ironically enough, uh, how I was actually approached, one of the gentlemen that works there um, used to be a potch uh, old boy. And knowing that I speak both English and Afrikaans, thought, and well, let's give him a try there. And so I obviously, yes. Yeah. Um, thought he'd give me a shot, and it's worked out pretty well so far. It's been, it's been fun shooting the campaigns uh, every single time that we do get to do so. And when you see them on TV, it's always weird listening to the questions you ask and how you react, because obviously it's intercut to, to make it work. We have long conversations. Each one of those tapings took about, what, 45 minutes to an hour driving around the same route in circles. And at the end, it's cut into a 30-second ad, which I think a lot of people have uh, found amusement out of and hopefully... in How uh, tightly are they scripted? Not... Not. There, there, there's a certain, obviously, line of questioning I'm meant to ask so that we get the right information. Sure. Out. But for the rest of the time, like, for instance, if you saw the one that we did in PE, and um, I spoke to the lady about how she found out about outsurance, and she was talking about the evening they were watching Prison Break with her husband. And I said at the end of the ad that she was the Michael Schofield in that particular <laughs> episode of that outsurance ad. That was completely just off the cuff. We were making yeah. a joke about it. Um, so they give me free reign to just speak as I will, make uh, jokes or have fun. And at the end, uh, they, they're able to put together, I think, a pretty cool package. Um, what What was your first job? Because, I mean, you, you were headed to become a singer, and you do sing, uh, but mu- music isn't your sort of primary f- source of income, I don't think. You were part of a group called Flip a Coin. Flip a Coin, yes. Back in the day, um, uh, varsity um, days. Yeah. <laughs> 
all of that. Um, we were traveling around the country as an. Where Jeremy loops when you need. <laughs> <laughs> create, create a loop for Absolutely, us. you should collaborate. But yes, we were traveling together as a, an acapella boy band, and we did pretty well for ourselves, which is uh, what got me into TV. But when you ask about my first job, I've got to think way back, and this is now two thousand, like nineteen ninety something, um, primary school, and I was working as a runner. At Saddles, when that restaurant chain still used to exist. And I was earning, you know, little 60 bucks on the weekend just to uh, fund the little things that I wanted to have, like little pocket monies um, to school. And uh, yeah, so that was me. That was my very, very first job. I was cleaning tables. Waitering is a good job, though. I mean, and it's running. It's a great way to start. It's a great way to start. It, it teaches you that you don't want to do this forever necessarily. Yes, yes. Um, and what real work is. Respect to all the waiters out there that, that no, spend hours and time serving people and making their meals more pleasurable. But when you are in it as a young person and Goodness. an ambitious young person, you go, this is a stepping stone. Absolutely. And it always was. Um, I, I always did my very best at every single table that I cleaned to impress the waiter who would then give me an extra tip. By, the, by so doing, I'd impress the manager who would then promote me from being a runner to a waiter more quickly, which meant I could serve tables on my own, do my best there again, get better tips, hopefully impress a CEO of a company that was around the area somewhere. They would then say, hey, do you want to come work here? And that's exactly how I went from being a runner to a waiter to retail at uh, True Worths and Markham to working as a a receptionist at Virgin Active, which is then by the time that I was in university where I then studied, worked as a receptionist, uh, joined Flipper Coin and thrust into television three years later. How did the thrust into television happen? So traveling around uh, at the festivals like Gaka and Ka in Arklop and uh, uh, all these festivals around the country we'd perform and Heisgenoot uh, was one of our main venues, the Heisgenoot Tent, where we usually would perform and uh, Jorne van Eistien, who was the former lead singer of Disselblom, uh, was Dusselblom. working... Disselblom. Disselblom. Blom. 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 Disselblom is an Afrikaans word to say it's very cool. This club Disselblom, my wife was... This will bloom. Thank you. The band. Um, I, I feel much more better informed. <laughs> yeah, so he was working for a magazine called The Cut at the time, and they were in the process the of uh, putting together an Afrikaans lifestyle TV show, and they needed a fresh, young face, somebody who could speak both English and Afrikaans, and I so happened to be somebody that he knew that could do so, and he told me about the auditions. I then got into a taxi on a random Monday uh, from Portsmouth, drove to uh, Johannesburg, found my way around the city and uh, interviewed Leon van Nierop, who is one of South Africa's foremost mm. film critics. And I had to interview him about his life and also about film uh, in Afrikaans. And so I did. And that is how it all started. And you'll see Katejo uh, Mabwe on Espresso. And he's there every single day. He's also a sought-after MC. He's also the guy in the outsurance ads. But you also do <laughs> some singing. I mean, I is, is that a commercial part of your life? It's, or it's it something that I'm hoping to make a co uh, commercial in my life. But obviously, I mean, music is, is quite difficult to break into. Um, and I've always just wanted to keep it a passion. Mm. Um, it would be amazing to be able to find success in it, but always doing it from a point of view of it being a passion and that evolution, not necessarily looking at it as, as a job. So currently I'm working with a couple of songwriters, including the likes of Chad Simon, uh, Hunter Kennedy, um, and also doing some song shopping, looking at what people are writing out there, what do I feel and vibe with, and hopefully pretty soon I'll be uh, releasing my first official single that'll start my hey. journey. Yes, that's, it, it's, that, it's that serious. I'm, I'm that okay, passionate cool. about it. Yeah. Um, are you good with money? I think I'm very good with money. 
I think I'm good with money. Okay, spending it is not necessarily. Oh, oh, is that what you mean? Oh, okay. <laughs> like, as, no, I, it, the faster it goes out, that's not a good thing. Yeah. And, no, but are, are you? Are you? Dis- you strike me. You're a very disciplined media professional. You work hard. You are very focused on the various aspects of what you do, which suggests that you have a level of self-discipline. That yes. doesn't always translate, though, into a self-discipline of money. Do you have it? I would think of myself as somebody who's very disciplined when it comes to money. I grew up that way. Um, washing, <laughs> though begrudgingly, so every Saturday, washing my granddad's cars and mm. with the promise of a 20 bucks at the end. 20 bucks? 20 bucks. It was the 90s. That was when inflation had hit. So it was a lot of money <laughs> at the was. time. And, um, you know, I, w- I would always just think to myself, well, I'm, I'm looking to buy this one thing, so I need to save this many 20 bucks over a certain period of time. And by the time I got there, I thought, well, this is not so important. Maybe put that in the bank account rather. Um, I actually remember my, my first memory of, of having a bank account was when my mom had seen or I had seen an ad for Iron Brew on TV and there were these guys that were like inline skating and they had these rollerblades on. I was like, oh, I want to be like those guys in a full plastic leotard, if you will, inline skating. And I said to my mom, I want to pay rollerblades for my birthday. And it cost like a hundred rand. And she's like, cool. When your birthday comes around, you will have those rollerblades. Come my birthday, she completely denied me on the day and said, here's a hundred rand. We're going to town and we're going to open up a bank account for you. And I think that's when I started learning the responsibility of money and appreciating its growth. But what's good about what you done also is by delaying gratification and by the time having enough money to buy the thing you thought you wanted two or three months ago you realize you don't actually want it and that's like the when it comes to investing and saving that ability to delay the instant gratification is the most powerful impulse yeah it, it, it works it works in most instances for me it works except when it comes to sneakers bruce i'm i'm, I'm oh goodness i i'm terrible i'm absolutely terrible when it comes to that i will admit it now i oh, do you have an imelda marcos do you know who even know who melda marcos was Melda marcos please inform she me. was the was she the president or the president's wife of the philippines and when they got melda the marcos, marcos family got booted out yes. they went into the presidential house and she had rooms full of shoes <laughs> <laughs> Rooms, so yeah. do you have that problem um i've tried to curb it um over the past couple of years just realizing how many sneakers and pairs of shoes i have some of which i haven't worn in months and months so i've slowed down considerably but uh, i still have that impulse that itch sometimes how many pairs wow Let's i mean how you can give it in tens in tens about a hundred and yeah yeah i think like 120 okay 120 and do you have any regrets in those 120 pairs of sneakers that you could only wear one pair of shoes at a time yeah. that you've worked up on Look, I've got a pair of gold shoes, literally gold-plated. Uh, gold-plated? Uh, yeah. How much did you pay for this? No, they were very cheap. But, uh, but it, was, it was for a specific reason. I had a show on at uh, the Sun City Super Bowl. And I had to be dressed in all gold. And so to complete well, the outfit, I, no, it, it, it was for work. So it I guess was that, was, that was that uh, was expenditure in the process of uh, acquiring income. Exactly. Yeah. And no, it was a very important thing that you had to do. I mean, other <laughs> than seekers, do you have any bad money habits? I don't think so. I think I, I tend to be a lot more stingy with money to myself than uh, what I should be. I, I save quite a lot. I save How do you save it? So what I, what I do is uh, come the end of the month... I make sure all of my bills are paid as they should be. And whatever it is that's remaining, I literally put into my savings. And as and when a need would come about, I then take a portion back into my spending uh, account and spend it there. But I don't easily after I've, I've moved the funds into uh, another 
place, just remove them from there. Um, when you, you talk about saving, yeah. um, the idea of saving and investing are two different things. True. Do you invest or yes. do you just save? Yes, I do. I do. I've got a financial advisor who's, whom I've been working with for the past uh, five years now. Um, that's a good. That's a good relationship because yeah. a lot of people struggle to get that that financial advisor relationship. Yeah. How did you meet your financial advisor? Uh, he used to be one of the guys that did the financial segments on our show, okay. and I had a conversation <laughs> with him afterwards. And I said, "Well, let's have a coffee," and we started talking. And he was interested enough in my life story and asked all the right kind of questions. And he had a certain demeanor about him that made me trust him. And uh, we've been working well for the past couple of years. Um, What's it, it take to impress you? From a financial advisor perspective, what was it about him that got the trust? Because it is, I mean, other than your most intimate, intimate personal relationship, somebody who helps you manage your family, your future family's well-being yeah. is a critical relationship. Absolutely. Knowledge. It takes knowledge. I need to be able to trust that you know what you're talking about, that you are obviously looking out for my best interests, which is what your, what your job is as my financial um, advisor. But most importantly, knowledge. Um, I, I can't for a second think that you doubt yourself in what you're saying because at the end of the day, you're the one that's supposed to know. But I, I've, I think over the years also learned that you can't solely leave the responsibility of your financial future in the hands of a financial advisor or anybody else for that matter. You need to walk the journey with them. It's very important. So you, you interfere in your financial advisor's decision making? Very much. Which is good. Uh, and I, and I, yeah. And I, yeah, I've learned to do it more and more over the years. Does um, your financial advisor appreciate it nearly as much as you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, but I, yeah, I'm not really concerned about that. Uh, luckily, I, I'm not there to nurse his ego. <laughs> oh, oh, tough customer. That sounds like no, such no, no, a no, bad line. No, no, but, no but, but you're absolutely right because, you know, these guys are, are there to look after your family's future well-being. Uh, do you have, I mean, you say you don't have many money habits other than those 120 pairs yeah. of sneakers. Have you ever made a really bad money decision, one that you do regret? Um, yeah, I think I have. I think we all have. Um, and I don't know in how much detail I can go into it, and I, and I shan't, but I'll say that I, I enough have. Enough detail to in, make it interesting. Yeah, in, enough detail. I think that's exactly what made me realize that, that you need to walk the journey with uh, the person that you've Did you make an investment in somebody's company? No. Did no, you no, buy a share? No. Did you buy a bad unit trust? No. Okay, then what was it? No. <laughs> this is something that I that I prefer to keep on a personal level, but it was it what it's the decision that or that that made me realize how important it is to walk okay. hand in hand with your financial advisor and to question everything that they say mm. in as far as you are knowledgeable about that. Did uh, it cost you a lot? Did that mistake cost you a lot of money? Yes, it did. Is are you pleased that you made the mistake as young as you made the mistake, so that you don't ever make that mistake again? Absolutely, absolutely. That uh, big, huh? It was <laughs> it, it was that big of a shock. <laughs> um, no, and there's and there's not. I mean, and it's that horrible thing, that realization when you know you've been ripped. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and there's no coming back from it other than swallowing the big boy pill and saying mm. this is my lesson learned, and I now need to move forward positively and make sure that it doesn't happen again. How important was studying accountancy? I mean, the fact that you, you though you are in the in the arts world, yeah. having an accounting background and having a, a, a basis of numbers, which a lot of people in the world of arts don't have, True. is incredibly valuable. Absolutely. It, it makes you aware. You, you think differently about uh, the money coming in, the money going out of your, your pockets and bank accounts. And, um, you know, other than the, the actual study of accounting itself being a means 
to um, please my mom in the fact that I needed to study something that would assure her that whatever happens, I would have a certain future. You can get a proper a job one day. I can get a proper job. Um, mind you, she's one of my biggest fans now. She's like, yeah, you made the right decision, son. It's great. <laughs> but having the, the, the financial background... Um, I think served me very well, especially from a young age when I started, when things started going really well in my career, that I was able to keep a calm head and was able mm. to think about my balance sheet, was able to think about my income statement. A, a lot of people, when big money comes in for the first time, freak out and, and do stupid things. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, and, uh, do you drive an expensive car? Don't wanna, <laughs> no, I don't. Good. I don't. I don't. Uh, do you <laughs> own your own home or do you rent? I'm in the process of finding a home at the at the moment. I am renting, but I am actively in the process of looking for a home. And will you pay off that home faster than the bank requires you to pay it off? Absolutely. My my in, intention is to go in with as high uh, a deposit into the initial amount as possible and to um, effectively own that home properly in a very short space of time. You won't tell us about your worst money decision other than it taught you a really important lesson. Best money decision you've ever taken? The best money decision uh, I've ever taken um, was taking, at, at the time when I had a really, really good year and taking a, a massive sum of money and saying to my financial advisor, put this away for me until I'm like 65 or something. Let it grow for me until then. And I'll see it then. Whatever happens in between, I'll manage. It's a brilliant lesson. It really is. Um, the, the, the future for you, as you look at the world of entertainment, as you look to break into music, as family looms, <laughs> how scared are you of money in the future? Does, does, the, does the threat of like John Carney, first ever Make Money Monday's guest, wow. he, uh, working in, the, in his 70s, his biggest fear is running out because he's had, for so long, had so little. Yeah. You've had great success early on. Does it worry you that the luck runs out? I, I think of myself as being a resourceful enough person to always find a way of digging up a well somewhere. Uh, I, I, I choose not to live in that fear. I know that it's a, it's a very real thing that one day you could be the hottest thing in the entertainment industry and tomorrow you could be a pile of ash. Um, but I choose not to live in that reality. I choose to find myself in a positive space every single day where I'm thankful for what I'm able to do and the opportunities I'm presented and knowing that if I do my best with every single one of those opportunities offered to me, um, sooner or, or, or later, another one will come up again and the wheel will keep on turning. He is... All round good guy, big smiley face, insurance ads. I take off to you, Bruce. <laughs> My face is big, but it ain't that smiley. <laughs> what a pleasure having you in. What great insights you've given us this evening. He's got his head screwed on, which is unusual, frankly, in uh, the arts world. But it's really nice to have you on the show, and thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me, sir. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get Great financial advice. Do great things. What a guy, Download the podcast if you missed it. Share it with your friends. He's got his head screwed on. That is it for this Monday evening. Looking forward to tomorrow. Great show lined up for you then. Tell you all about it tomorrow. Cheers.